think I have to tell you that last Friday, June 24th, the United States Supreme Court overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which had legalized abortion in all 50 states. To be clear, the court did not outlaw abortion. The court returned the issue to the states. And this ruling will undoubtedly bring abortion center stage for the foreseeable future as our nation deals with the political fallout of Friday's ruling. Some states have trigger laws designed to ban abortion immediately upon the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Others will revert to historic laws which were superseded by Roe. So others, including South Carolina, have been working on new restrictions against abortion in the event that Roe might be overturned. And in some states, abortion will continue unaffected by Friday's ruling. Friday's ruling may very well be one of the most significant rulings of our lifetime. And you are doubtless going to read and hear scores of opinions through the news, social media, and social networks. And I wonder, are we prepared to digest all this news and to respond biblically? Given the magnitude of Friday's decision, I decided to suspend our progress through John's Gospel Friday afternoon. I decided this after getting a text from Billy Bedingfield. And uh, I thought, you know what, I really should take this on and let's at least take initial stab at this and make sure that we are thinking and responding biblically. We probably need to come back and visit this more on a later occasion. First of all, I want to make sure that we are biblically grounded about the sanctity of human fetal life. Secondly, let's make sure that we are thinking correctly about who owns our bodies. And thirdly, let's make sure that we are responding biblically to any Christian obligations that we might have in the aftermath of Roe. What does this mean for the church? In the transcript from Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart put a question to Sarah Weddington, the attorney for Norma Corvey, McCorvey rather, a.k.a. Jane Roe. He said, if it were established that an unborn fetus is a person within the protection of the 14th Amendment, you would have an almost impossible case here, would you not? Weddington responded, I would have a very difficult case. Friends, that was the central issue, at least from a Christian perspective. Is there a person a human being in the womb of a pregnant mother. Writing the majority opinion in Friday's Dobbs versus Jackson ruling, Justice Samuel Alito writes, quote, abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Some believe fervently that a human person comes into being at conception and that abortion ends an innocent life. And that is the traditional evangelical Christian position. But what exactly is a human person? Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. 
and let's work at an answer. What is a human person? After narrating God's creation of a world teeming with life, the Bible's first chapter climaxes with the first, first person conversation of God. Verse 26 is the first record of a conversation among the members of the Trinity. And God proclaims his intention in verse 26 to create a final creature. Look at these words in our image and after our likeness. Would you notice how God uses first person plural pronouns? That's because God is not a force as the pantheist believes. God is not the evolutionary process. God is a plurality of persons whom you describe using personal pronouns. All through Scripture, God acts, knows, feels, wills, communicates, and responds as a person. So if God is going to make something after his own likeness, he will have to make persons. Now, in Genesis 1, before the incarnation, friends, God does not have a body. Therefore, when God makes human persons in his image, there must be something more to our image bearing than merely our physical bodies. There is an immaterial aspect to our humanity that is universally assumed throughout Scripture. We have souls, not merely bodies. Minds, not merely brains. Our humanity is more than the sum of atoms with which our bodies are composed. We are made in the image of God, and God is not composed of atoms before the Incarnation. Now, from the ancient Epicureans all the way down to the modern naturalists, philosophers have attempted to deny our immateriality, our soulishness. But modern scientists are forced to admit that they cannot explain the mystery of humanity as nothing more than a collection of atoms. Here is a physicist, Gerald Schroeder. He writes, The mystery that remains in the sunset is the riddle of why and how a mixture of seemingly inert, unthinking atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and several other varieties can produce humans capable of having the subjective experience we refer to as beauty or the love that would have us kiss our kids goodnight. Science is no closer to answering those questions today than it was a century ago. Well, the truth is you will never be able to answer those questions unless you adopt a biblical view of man. Man is fearfully and wonderfully made because he is made in the image and likeness of God. Verse 27 then records God's crowning act of creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God... He created him. And notice this, male and female, he created them. Friends, to define humanity, you need to begin right there. That's where God begins. Verse 27 is the foundation for human dignity, 
human rights, human purpose, human value. It's right there we are made in the image of God. To dismiss verse 27 as some sort of ancient superstition is to embrace irresponsible and unsustainable definitions of humanity. Charles Darwin reduced man to an animal. Karl Marx reduced man to the product of irresistible forces. Relieved of any culpability for his crimes. You're nothing more than the product of forces, economic forces in particular. Freud reduced man's behaviors to deterministic subconscious forces. You have no control of yourself in the end. And these modern redefinitions of humanity produce the genocides, the holocaust, the killing fields, the tyrannical regimes that proved so destructive throughout the 20th century and beyond. You do not want to undermine the Bible's role, the biblical view of man, because you will embrace devastating consequences. When you strip away the image of God and man, friends, you strip away any sound basis for morality or any justification for human dignity and purpose. You, just, you look to the last century of our, of our country, of our world, and we can't find purpose, we can't find meaning. The fact is, every attempt to define humanity without reference to God's image will end in absurdity. It will. Don't take my word for it. Here is Nicholas Humphrey, a Cambridge psychologist. Quote, Our starting assumption as scientists ought to be that on some level consciousness has to be an illusion. Consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. You're not even conscious of yourself. Francis Crick You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons. That's all you are. William Provine, an evolutionary biologist at Cornell, writes, human beings are marvelously complex machines. That is all there is. We must conclude that when we die, we die and that is the end of us. Well, friends, when you embrace such naturalistic explanations of humanity, then you will inevitably view fetal life in completely naturalistic categories. I mean, how could it be otherwise? If postnatal, that is adult human life, has no great meaning or value, then what can you say of prenatal life? Why should it be any different? One defender of pro-choice writes, quote, in fact, the biological definition of parasite fits the fetal mode of growth precisely, especially since pregnancy causes a major upset to a woman's body just like a parasite does to its host. So abortion is a matter of eliminating a parasite. And that is perfectly consistent with the view of humanity that is deprived of the image of God. But what does the Scripture say? about the sanctity of fetal human life. Well, let's take up this first question and look at Genesis 1 and verse 28. And notice the first thing that God tells humans to do. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply that image of God. God intends for humans to reproduce themselves. However, friends, even though God commands humans to be fruitful, 
Did you know the Bible insists, insists that procreation is also the work of the Creator? It's not just two humans. It's the work of the Creator. And let me show you that by turning to Psalm 139. We looked at this psalm a few years ago. I think it was on a Mother's Day. Let's return to it now. In Psalm 139, David describes his own formation in his mother's womb. It is a beautiful and a delicate description of what is happening even right now in the wombs of some of our ladies. It is happening in the wombs of women all over the world at this very hour. As we read through the passage, notice the active verbs describing God's work, and notice also the personal pronouns. Let's begin reading with verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13, David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame, my skeletal structure was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my, look at these words, unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Well, friends, would you observe four critical facts in this passage? First of all, David's use of personal pronouns implies the humanness, the personhood of his fetus. Describing himself in the womb, David uses terms like I, my, me. David is not merely an extension of his mother's body. He is not a parasite lodged in his mother's womb. Secondly, in verse 16, David viewed himself as human even when his condition was, quote, unformed substance. David, of course, knew nothing of modern embryology or embryonic stem cells or anything like that. But David did write under inspiration. And God's Spirit guided his curious word choice. The text suggests that even during the earliest stages of pregnancy, before a detectable heartbeat or brain function, when as yet there was no clearly formed neural system or circulatory system, when his substance was still unformed, very early on, David viewed himself as human. Friends, here's what modern biology has shown us. A person's entire genome, that is his full complement of chromosomes, exists in the zygote. That is a single cell formed by the union of the male sperm and the female ovum. The zygote is a unique, a unique combination of genetic information from both the father and the mother. The zygote contains the entire genetic information necessary to navigate the entire process of intrauterine development, growth, birth, puberty, and adult maturation. It's all there. 
in that single cell. Your entire genetic information was in that single cell at the beginning. When human embryos are implanted into a surrogate mother's womb, they receive no genetic information from that surrogate mother. After conception, the only physical requirements necessary to sustain fetal life are the same requirements necessary to sustain your adult life. Water, nutrition, and oxygen. So in verse 16, when, David's, when God saw David's unformed substance, apparently God saw someone who was genetically complete and genetically distinct from his mother from day one. That really does seem to me to be the safest possible interpretation. Thirdly, David in verse 15 metaphorically compares a mother's womb to, quote, the depths of the earth. When he says, I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Well, what is he referring to? The metaphor seems to be an allusion to the creation account where God breathed into that dust of the earth a living soul in Adam. It speaks of the Creator forming David the way He formed Adam. Friends, we sometimes talk as if God made Adam and Eve, but nature is taking care of the rest of us. But David's metaphor views himself as being created by God, just like Adam was directly created by God. Fourthly, David views the whole pregnancy process as a creative act of God. And you know that when you look at the verbs, he uses three verbs to describe himself as continually being created by God. God, you formed me. You knitted me. I was being made in my mother's womb. Now, Christians sometimes wrongly conclude that God works by miracles, but nature takes care of everything else. That's not actually what you find in the Bible. When God works quickly, call it a miracle. And when God works slowly, call it providence. Now, that's a slight oversimplification. But sometimes we're tempted to think that God only works when he spontaneously creates sight in a blind eye or spontaneously opens the ears of a deaf man or commands the lame to stand up and walk. But frankly, the only reason any of us can open our eyes or stand up and walk is because God, the Creator, crafted us slowly and carefully in the depths of our mother's wombs. You are no less a splendid work of creation than the recipient of a miracle because the Creator took His time with you. Now you put those four facts together and it's apparent the psalm speaks of the humanity and the personhood of fetal life. Friends, abortion is not about just stopping a beating heart. Abortion is a violent termination of the Creator's work. Abortion destroys millions of the Creator's works of art. Abortion is a brutal destruction of the image of God in the personhood of the fetus. With that in mind, let's turn to Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of God forming 
knowing and sanctifying him in his mother's womb. In fact, even before he was formed in the womb, Jeremiah views himself as known by God. Look at what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. God says, before, Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you the womb, I knew you. I knew the person, Jeremiah, even before you were in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet of the nations. Clearly, in the mind of God, there was Jeremiah, the person, a person whom God knew, a person whom God consecrated, even before he was fully formed in the womb. The passage actually speaks to the priority of personhood even before the body. Think of that. The priority of the person even before the body. Let's skip ahead now to Jeremiah 20 and verse 17. And here the prophet indicates that death in the womb is possible, implying that his fetus was a living person. Jeremiah says in 20 verse 17, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave. Well, all of us know that to be killed, one must first be alive. Jeremiah's view of himself is that there was a living person in his mother's womb. Now, friends, there are several other passages that we could point to. But I think these two clearly establish that God values human, personal, living life in the womb. So was Justice Alito correct in his description of our beliefs? Yes, I think that he was. The Bible supports the sanctity of human fetal life. So with that in mind, let's move to our second question, our second issue. And let's make sure that we are thinking correctly about our own bodies. And I mean this for both men and women. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and address the question of who owns our bodies. The most oft-repeated argument in favor of abortion is a woman's rights over her own body. In fact, that's the argument that you hear all the time. And Justice Alito goes on to acknowledge this argument, writing this, Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. That's what the Supreme Court said on Friday. So let's evaluate this carefully. As Christians, do we not believe, first of all, in the full equality of women? Well, the Bible teaches that men and women are equally made in the image and likeness of God. We just saw that back in Genesis 1. Well, does a woman have a right to control her own body? Well, the Bible certainly forbids our doing harm to another person's body. 
In fact, the penalties in the Mosaic law for violating someone else, for violating a woman, are quite severe. The Bible has much to say about the protection and the preservation of the human body. In fact, it's the Bible that views the body as a temple. Further, Christianity's incarnational theology sets it apart from every other world religion. God embodied us at creation, and God looked at those bodies and He said, they are very good. And God Himself took a human body in the virginal conception, and God kept that body in His bodily resurrection. And Christianity insists on the eternalization of the incarnation precisely because God values the bodies He creates. The early church fought vehemently against Gnosticism as totally incompatible with the Christian doctrine of the body. Gnosticism devalued the body, celebrating only the spirit. But Christianity claims that God took a body and He kept it forever in the person of Jesus Christ. The bodily incarnation of God, friends, is the heartbeat of the gospel. It is the centerpiece of the Bible. It is the central fact of the universe. In the gospel, God united himself permanently, unreservedly, indissolubly, and bodily with his creation, with our humanity, in order to redeem his fallen creation. So yes, indeed, it would seem that we should support a woman's rights over her own body. Of course. In fact, those rights stem from the Christian view of the world. They do not come from Darwinism or Marxism or Freudianism. It's not where they come from. So friends, is that the end of the matter? Just leave it there. We all have the right to do whatever we please with our bodies. Well, where do we get these rights? And in what sense do we own our bodies? Do we need to be a little bit more nuanced if we're going to take into consideration all that the Scripture has to say on this issue? Do our rights, here's a crucial question, do our rights over our bodies stem from self-ownership? Do our rights over our bodies stem from self-ownership? Or is our ownership more one of stewardship? If I own my house, presumably I can do with it what I want. I can paint every room hot pink if I want. Well, might have a marriage problem, but... If I own my own car, presumably I can do with it what I want. I can put sand in the gas tank if I want and damage my engine... It's my prerogative, right? But is that what we mean by ownership? My absolute right over my body to do whatever I want with it, even to do it harm. Did you know that it is illegal to donate both your kidneys? It's actually illegal. Why does the government not allow me to donate both my kidneys? Well, that would do irrevocable damage to my body. I'd be dead. In fact, there was a case in California several years ago where a judge 
for bad, an inmate on death row, on death row from donating his kidneys to fund his daughter's education. Can't do that. The government stopped it. Well, why do we expect the government to step in in such cases and prevent us from doing bodily harm? Well, the answer does not come from a naturalistic worldview. The biblical answer to that question is really twofold, and I'm going to develop one side of this. But first of all, the biblical answer is that human government is ordained by God for our protection. In fact, to preserve and to protect our bodies. You see that in Romans 13. God ordained government for human protection. So friends, I am certainly in favor of any judicial ruling that promotes that end. I mean, that's why God gave the government authority. Protect human life. But secondly, for our purposes, our ownership is really truly a matter of stewardship. Because biblically speaking, although we live in our bodies and have some control over our bodies, we do not actually own our bodies at all. They are temples that belong to the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Or do you not know that your, look at the word, body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Both your body and the Spirit come from God. And notice these next words. You are not your own, friends. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Well, who owns your body? Well, clearly you don't. Certainly, again, I have some control over my body, but don't confuse control with ownership. We are stewards of the true owner of our body. In fact, for the Christian, God actually has a double claim on your body. Do you realize that? He created us in the first place, Psalm 139. He made you in your mother's womb. He has ownership of whatever he makes. And secondly, as our verse indicates, he redeemed our humanity. God has a double claim on your body. So the Christian view is that indeed we do have certain rights, but they are guaranteed to us, granted to us by our Creator who owns everything in creation. And that view is actually enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. I'm not sure that Thomas Jefferson thought the way we do about this, but listen to these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that cannot be taken away because they come from the Creator. But friends, that sword cuts both ways, does it not? If you ground your rights in the Creator, then you are obligated to obey the Creator's laws. We are not radically free. As stewards of God-given rights, we have an absolute moral obligation to our Creator who actually owns our bodies. And if you listen very carefully to the conversations that are going to erupt and are erupting right now over the end of Roe v. Wade... And if your experience is like mine, you will hear a lot of discussion about women's rights. 
But that discussion will not ground itself in anything more than rights for rights' sake. Rights as an end in themselves. They will not venture to discuss where those rights come from. What has God told us to do with our bodies? That's irrelevant. Americans want their unalienable rights. But we are no longer interested in rights endowed by our Creator. And friends, this this is our terrible, terrible American dilemma right now. Without a Creator, we have no foundation for our rights. But if we embrace our Creator, our rights are no longer our own. I'd better say that again. Without a Creator, we have no foundation for our rights. But if we embrace our Creator, our rights are no longer our own. You want an example of that? Well, what do you think the average American does when he claims that God gives him unalienable rights and then God tells him something like you read right there in verse 18? Go back one verse, look at verse 18. Here's what God said to the pen of Paul. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Does that sound like God gives you the right to do whatever you want with your body? No. Friends, there is such a thing as a sin against your body because God owns that body. That is the context of verse 19. The Holy Spirit owns my body, so I dare not sin against it because it belongs to the Spirit. And friends, dare I ask how many people, men and women alike, men and women alike, men are not off the hook on this by any means, How many of them are taking to our streets in protest over the end of Roe precisely because of the prudishness of verse 18? Far from fleeing sexual immorality, they want legal protection to pursue it wholeheartedly and to abort the consequences. That is the issue. We want to to pursue immorality and abort the consequences, and you'd better give me my right. But friends, let's be very clear. We do not own our bodies. We are stewards of our bodies, and we will give an account for everything that we do in our body. And since that's the case, let's make sure that we are responding biblically to any Christian obligations that we may have in the aftermath of Rome. Friends, we are not going to see the end of abortion in our country. Children will be aborted today and tomorrow and all week long. But hopefully, hopefully, prayerfully, we will see a decrease in abortion. And I welcome that. In many cases, it's going to be much more difficult for a woman to get an abortion. So I wonder, has the Christian community actually prepared for this? There are many applications we can make, but I want to consider just one. Our country has a more, a far more egregious problem than Roe. 
That problem is men and women who don't desire their children. I mean, if men and women wanted their children, there'd be no abortion. So what will become of those who are no longer aborted, but who are not loved? Friends, can you be pro-life without being pro-adoption? Now, I don't want to put anyone on a guilt trip. Adoption is a very, very difficult topic to speak on because if you haven't done it, you feel guilty. And if you have done it, you feel like you're tooting your own horn, right? It's really, really difficult. So let me just set that aside and let's just, let's just consider what the gospel says. I do realize that adoption is not for everyone. But if ever, if ever there was a time to consider adoption, friends, now is that time. Now is the hour. And Christians have done a phenomenally better job of engaging adoption than the world at large. That is true. But we have probably reached a point where we need to redouble our efforts going forward. Justice Amy Barrett, who was an adoptive mother in her confirmation hearings to the Supreme Court, pointed to adoption as a better solution than abortion. I think that she is right. And she lives that out every day with her children. But the question becomes, who will adopt these children? Did you know that the book of Deuteronomy alone has 11 references to God's care for the fatherless, the orphans? 11. If you think the Bible has a lot to say about things like music, well, look at what the Bible says about orphans. You'll be shocked. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless. 14.29, the fatherless who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you. 24.17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the fatherless. 24.19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, it shall be for the fatherless that the Lord your God may bless you. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the fatherless. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the fatherless. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, giving it to the fatherless. 27.19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the fatherless. God cares about the orphan. If I were to ask you why God allowed Jerusalem and his holy temple to suffer desolation, what would you say? Would it occur to any of you that one reason that God destroyed the temple and sent the Jews into captivity was their abandonment of the fatherless? You all know the very famous words of Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, that your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But what sins? One of those sins that he itemizes is neglecting the orphans. Listen to Jeremiah 7. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Amend your ways and your deeds. If you do not oppress the sojourn of the fatherless or the widow, if we don't oppress the fatherless, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Caring for orphans, friends, was a prerequisite for dwelling in the promised land. And might it be that God expects us to care for orphans so long as we live in this bountiful country surrounded by enormous wealth? And yes, you are wealthy. Compare yourself to any other nation in the world, friends, you are wealthy. But did Judah heed the voice of the Lord through Jeremiah? 
In Lamentations 5, Jeremiah describes a remarkable turn of events. The people cry out in captivity, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. The Jews failed to care for the orphans. They were driven from the promised land, and they became orphans. Friends, do you want to hear something really astonishing? Like, really astonishing? Most of you will know that the Edomites were the perpetual, implacable enemies of God's people. Obadiah pronounces Edom's spectacular doom. Jeremiah picks up on much of the warning of Obadiah. But in the midst of pronouncing Edom's destruction, Jeremiah records a startling line which reveals something of the inner chamber of the heart of the Father. Here's what he says. God says, leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive. And let your widows trust in me. Edomite orphans. Edomite orphans. Edomite widows. Look to the Father. Look to Yahweh. Look to Israel's God. He will be your Father. Friends, the New Testament word for that is gospel. You were God's implacable enemy. You were a child of the devil. And the devil is a wicked father who aborts and abandons his own, leaving them orphaned in hell. But God adopted you into his family. And you acknowledge that adoption every time you breathe the word Father in a prayer. Paul says in Romans 8.15, You have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So friends, if God adopted you, why not consider making your home a living, incarnate illustration of the gospel? I mean, that's what James means when he writes James 1 and verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now again, I understand that adoption isn't for everyone. There are many ways to get involved, volunteering and crisis pregnancy clinics, and so forth. I'm just using one illustration to get us really thinking about, okay, what is, what is my responsibility now in the aftermath of Roe? So adoption is not for everyone, but I, I am personally convinced that Friday's ruling is going to open numerous opportunities for believers to illustrate the gospel through adoption. I, I think those opportunities are just going to increase dramatically. Now, friends, can you love a child that has no genetic relationship to you? Do you love your spouse? Is adoption a lot of work? Yes, but so were you. You caused your parents no end of grief. Can you afford an adoption? No. Probably not, but if God wants that child in his family and yours, he will provide. Are you too old to adopt? Quite possibly, but your kids aren't, so remember the previous question. They can't afford it. Do you realize that God's whole plan of salvation just hung in the balance of an adoption What if Joseph had failed to adopt Jesus 
into the line of Davidic king so that David's Lord could be David's son who rules the nations forever. Friends, Jesus was adopted by a human father, guaranteeing our adoption by our heavenly father. So I wonder how many more children God plans to adopt into his family when he ruled in the hearts of our Supreme Court justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. Friends, this is not the end. This is a new beginning for the church. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this ruling. And Lord, we pray that it would force us as a nation to consider again what we are doing to our children. And I pray, Lord, that as Christians, we might look again at opportunities that you are putting right in front of us to advance your kingdom. We pray it for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.